the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash Spot Track in your browser. Get 40% off that first year subscription. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues, and get exclusive ad free content at your fingertip. Going to be referencing The Athletic right out of the gate here. Not so much winners and losers, but just a recap the team-by-team breakdown of this MLB trade deadline, which certainly did not disappoint. There were a lot of names rumored on the hot stove. Many of those names were dealt. We're going to break down the facts, the figures, the finances for many, many of those moves to start this show. And then back end, LeBron James will be back in the news. (laughs) Have you missed him? Probably not. He's coming back. There's a deadline, contractually speaking, coming up here. And probably by the time you're listening to this, There'll be some action regarding that deadline. Maybe not so much contractually, but at least the discussion about what's next with LeBron James, the Lakers, and everything surrounding that entire situation. So quickly off the top here, I'm going to open with NFL extension candidates, just kind of run through some names and uh, some likelihoods. Major League Baseball trade deadline recap and LeBron James. That's your Wednesday, Thursday edition of the Spot Trek Podcast. Today's episode is brought to us by Dynasty Owner. Visit DynastyOwner.com, click around, go to the How It Works tab, look at all the bells and whistles, all the customizations, all the different things you can do with your gigantic, big, complicated Dynasty Fantasy Football League. You will understand why this is one of the best in the business. Real NFL salaries. They use average salaries. So Debo Samuel's number just got a hell of a lot bigger. If you owned him in a Dynasty Dynasty League inside of Dynasty Owner, you have to make a decision right now. Are you going to take that new $23.8 million AAV? Are you going to trade him, put him on the block, and try to get something for him? Maybe a two-for-one situation to build up your depth versus keeping a guy that expensive. It's been a bad year for Dynasty owners in terms of wide receivers because everybody got expensive this offseason. But that's the complications you're dealing with. Real-life stuff. So DynastyOwner.com. Use code SPOTTREK20. Get yourself $20 off that registration. Start customizing your lead for 2022. Speaking of the NFL, it's time to uh, break down a few candidates because a lot of teams look inside, look internal and say, all right, well, look, this guy may have a bigger role than we anticipated, or obviously this guy's going to be here for the next two to three years. Let's take care of him today versus March versus February when things may get a hell of a lot more expensive and, or we'll have to deal with tags with free agency, things like that. So I've got about 15 players here. I'm just going to quickly run through. Obviously we'll be breaking down more of these guys, uh, deep dives in terms of next contract series. Um, Obviously, we'll be doing some team-by-team stuff as well. We always do that every in-season with this NFL. But I'm going to get Lamar off the top here. I don't think it's happening. You know, I think they've tried. Lamar may have even, you know, given them some ramifications of what he's looking for, and Baltimore is simply not willing to go there. And by the way, that very well could be fully guaranteed. Why not? I mean, why not? So I don't think that one's going anywhere in the interim. We'll be discussing this heavily in February when the franchise tag is looming. I think that's exactly where we're headed, is that exclusive franchise tag, which is going to be pretty damn expensive. And then we'll be talking about, is somebody going to give up you know, multiple first-round picks to really, really go after this guy if we're talking about a tag-and-trade situation? It's very possible. Because Baltimore may be listening. I, I just ran through NFL depth charts. and. I've got my, I'll kind of my ducks in a row here for this upcoming season in terms of what I think projective-wise these starting lineups are going to look like. And as I'm filling out every starting player for the Baltimore Ravens, right, from fullback 
to special teamers to long snappers to right inside linebackers. I love this team. <laughs> okay. I don't quite understand the passing game, and that's both quarterback slash wide receiver options. But if these running backs are healthy, and I realize the huge asterisk that comes with that, and Lamar is Lamar, I'm not sure Lamar has to throw for 4,000 yards. And by the way, that's probably not happening in any way. But there are so many names. There are so much athleticism on this roster that if we get six to eight weeks in that division without Deshaun Watson, as we're certainly expecting now, if it's Mitchell Trubisky in Pittsburgh, and then Burrow is Burrow, is this a two-dog race in that division to start the year? I think it is. And nobody's talking Baltimore because Lamar hasn't signed, because Cleveland is so loud, because the Bengals went to the Super Bowl. It's just a lot of noise everywhere else. It's a very solid roster. It's a very athletic defense. I mean, they're going to they're gonna make hell for some teams out there in that AFC, a good AFC. They're going to be a factor. And Lamar probably knows that deep down. Lamar's probably hearing all the BS, myself included, about how his stats don't calculate properly or his risk is percentiles higher, blah, blah, blah. All that's true, by the way. <laughs> but all he has to do is Joe Flacco this thing. And I'm not even saying win the Super Bowl. All I'm saying is if they are, if they are a factor in this now loaded AFC, and especially in that division, it's going to be loud when it comes to that negotiation. Really loud. It's going to be $50 million. It's going to be fully guaranteed. And that's where we're going. And obviously, that's what he's looking for. Otherwise, this thing is done right now. So he's on the top of the list. I'm not going to go into too much depth because we've done shows on him. And I just don't think we're going we're to have any real discussions about this until February. I kind of hope I'm wrong. But we've seen this movie before, especially in Baltimore with Joe Flacco. And I think that's exactly where Lamar's head is right now. I'll take nothing less than this, fully guaranteed, $50 million. And if that's not there... I'm going to go out there and I'm going to show everybody in this AFC just how good this team is with me in charge. All right, quickly, a couple of wide receivers on this list. Marquise Brown, Hollywood Brown, and uh, former Raven, now Arizona, who's going to be the lead dog while DeAndre Hopkins is suspended with Kyler Murray's new contract. I have to imagine Torrey Dondi's getting this done right now. He's, you know, the wide receiver whisperer here. It's going to look a lot like probably that Terry McLaurin deal, even though he didn't do that one. Probably around probably in between Metcalf and A.J. Brown is where Marquise Brown's deal falls. Now, is he a number one wide receiver? We really haven't seen that out of him yet, but he's going to be paid like one, no question about it, 22, 23, 24 million, 55 million guaranteed somewhere in that boat. So uh, that one's probably coming ASAP. Here's a name that's not being mentioned a lot. Mike Evans is up. He's ready. He needs a contract. Chris Godwin just got one. They just signed Julio Jones. You know, Gronk's gone. Brady's probably on the final year here for real, for age 45, literally today as I'm speaking. Um, so maybe the quarterback stuff is putting pause on pushing too many weapons out. And maybe Mike Evans is saying, I want to see what this team looks like in 2023 before I lock anything in. Both those things are perfectly possible. Is he a number one wide receiver? He's a 1A, I think absolutely. But I'm not sure he can be the focal point on a team in terms of a weapon. And that's not, I'm not really dogging him. He's had injuries. He's taken games off. He's been that kind of player. He's a hell of a talent. Um, 
I wonder if he's not in the long-term plan in Tampa. If he's one of those guys that either gets shopped next year and or it's a sign-and-trade type situation to go somewhere else with maybe a younger quarterback, maybe a, a younger team, maybe the Jets, something like that, teams that are just kind of looking to grow up and, and, and add some vets finally because they got some things figured out from a draft standpoint. I wonder if that's where we're going with Mike Evans. And again, not a knock on him personally, just where he is in his career. You know, it doesn't feel like he would be the next Devonta Adams contract at, at all, you know? And I wonder where we're headed with that in the next 18 months. Darren Waller is the last pass catcher on this list. Um, got two years left in his contract. Everybody else in Las Vegas just got paid. He's maybe the best, you know, n- n- best name not named Devonta Adams in terms of offensive weapons. I think that may be extremely factual. He's going to get his due. The problem is the tight end market has gone nowhere in 18 months. You know, Goddard did a decent job with it. Mark Andrews, I actually liked that contract quite a bit, but it didn't really push the envelope. George Kittle is still the guy. Travis Kelsey's too old to really push that gamut too much. Waller's there. He's, in, he's around the 29, 30-year age. He's a weapon. He's going to lose some, some production here because of how good that team got offensively. So you want to get this thing done right now. You want to be paid for a little bit what you've done, certainly what you can do on a better team. But before things get squirrely and Devontae Adams starts taking 25 catches from him, I really hope he gets his due because he is that, that contract he signed was bonkers low and it's got to be double heading into the next two to three years if he's going to stick around. A couple of offensive linemen, Quentin Nelson, guard out of Indy. Indy always gets their guys done. I'm not sure, quite sure why this one isn't done yet. Maybe it's happening as we speak. Uh, he's probably going to be the top eight guard in the history of football when it's done. Maybe that's why. <laughs> and Indy's just kind of uh, spinning their wheels a little bit with this one. This one's fascinating, though. Elk- Elton Jenkins, the right tackle for the Packers. Uh, the reason I've, I've discussed this before, but I want to make sure it's out there again. Uh, he's he's going to enter camp as a starting right tackle. There's no question about it. Now, David Bakhtiari is still not healthy, still not practicing. I, I assume very lightly that he will be back at some point in time. Maybe not week one. Maybe not week six. I don't know. It's been weird. He's been kind of a ghost from an injury standpoint. But it looks like Jenkins may be the starting left tackle again. He was last year through Bakhtiari's injury. Bakhtiari's got a major contract out after this. So I think regardless of what kind of player he can return to in 2022, Green Bay is going to get out of that contract, which puts an expiring Jenkins at the forefront here. I mean, he's got a legitimate chance now to again, show that he can handle that spot in that roster and then become the future left tackle. We've seen this before in Philly. We've seen it in a couple of places where guys, you know, Orlando Brown coming out of Baltimore to Kansas City, they've just shown that when they make that flip, they can handle it. And once you become the left tackle, things get a lot more expensive. So do the Packers try to get this done right now? Or is the cat out of the bag and he's already going to be a $22 million player? I think they can get him in the 16 to 18 million mark because of where he started. And I would expect they're trying right now to get that done. A couple of running backs real quick. Derrick Henry. Look, if they're going to move on from Tannehill next year, then why not just keep Henry around for two more years and let him at least be the focal point of that offense to go with some young wide receivers and quarterback acts, whether it's Malik Willis or Kirk Cousins, wherever the hell it's going to be. Um, but I think keeping Henry along long-term, lowering that cap rate this year makes sense. And then Damian Harris. Um, I mean, New England doesn't pay. You know, it's four or five million per year for any running back. And this guy's had some fumble issues. So there's no question he's been in and out of the doghouse for Belichick. But he's a real hammer 
I mean, he can really play and he can get out there and move too. So is he the complete player that like a James White has been where to where you can continually get that $5 million contract year to year? Maybe not. But do they try to bump this out like four for 16 and see if, if Harris bites? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, he's that kind of, kind of weapon. He's shown he can make it happen kind of inconsistently. So maybe you let this thing expire and then get to him in free agency. But New England loves doing things late August and just seems like that's a name that could get done. Last one is tight end uh, TJ Hawkinson. Detroit has a ton of cap allocated. They have the most cap allocated to projected starting lineups in all of football right now. So they're not restructuring. They're kind of keeping their vets where they are. They're, they're not tanking. I mean, they got a hell of a lot better this offseason. And I think they just need to see six good weeks out of Hawkinson again with Goff to understand that he's just the guy. He's just the guy. And then we'll get that contract done before, uh, you know, we get the franchise tag discussions with him as well. A couple of defensive players. Jordan Poyer, safety for Buffalo. He's been public about wanting that new contract. He's now injured. He walked out of training camp yesterday with the Bills basically in a sling. So that's a TBD asterisk situation. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons with the Titans, the defensive lineman. I just don't know that Tennessee wants to pay. I mean, it's going to be $20, 25000000 million where, that, where those have all gone. Aaron Donald just put 30 down. So this, as a tier two defensive lineman who can pe- rush the quarterback and get sacks, you know, you're not doing less than 20, in my opinion, on that guy. And that goes for Montez Sweat in Washington as well, who's on this list. Nick Bosa has this plus the fifth-year option left in San Francisco. Debo is now done. I assume once Garoppolo is off that roster or restructured to some, you know, kind of backup contract that Bosa gets done, that's going to be a big boy contract. You know, that's going to be up for 27, 28 million per year. And, uh, and then Derwin James in Los Angeles for the Chargers. They've been discussing, he's holding in, basically sitting on the sidelines on an exercise bike, waiting for this thing to get done. We know where the safety market is now. It's upwards of 20. I love the guy. I think when he's healthy, they're a Super Bowl contender. He's that kind of important. I think this is the right team in the right year at the right time for all of this to happen. You're going to have to pay Herbert $48 million a year next year, most likely. So I would put 18 to 19 to 20 million in the Durant Dur- James's hand right now. 45 million guaranteed at signing. Let's just get this done. Okay. Um, I wouldn't want to screw around with that kind of passing game situation. Knowing what you have offensively, you brought back Mike Williams. You've got a couple of running backs who can go up with Austin Eckler now. There's just a lot of reasons to love this roster. And I wouldn't want to be dealing with him on a tag, needing a contract next year. And then also, oh, by the way, Justin Herbert's also looking for a deal. Let's just stagger this thing, get it done now. Head into week one with a very established financial roster, knowing how big of a year it's going to be for quarterback Herbert. All right. Let's switch gears to Major League Baseball and a hell of a couple days trade-wise. Okay, as I mentioned, all the big fish went. Most of the big fish went. I thought maybe Carlos Rodon would leave San Francisco. Um, Sean Murphy was a decent-sized fish out of Oakland. Oakland certainly moved enough players this year, so I understand they didn't get what they wanted for that, and he's got some control left, so why do it? And then the Cubs players, Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ, stay as well. But Juan Soto did move. I'm not going to bore you with too much Padre stuff here because I loaded up Twitter yesterday with as much fun facts as I could figure out. And, you know, things just kind of pop up as you're, uh, as you're manually updating these kind of players, right? I mean, these 
ridiculous prospects that moved. I believe there were like 11 of the top 20 prospects they gave up in three or four trades yesterday. I'm not going to go that side of it too much here. But our buddy Sarah Langs, who's just the best in terms of positivity, in terms of the hard work, and just her dedication to the fun facts of Major League Baseball, put together an awesome piece on MLB.com this morning. Nine wild facts about the, the, the Juan Soto trade. Here we go. <laughs> okay. I feel like this is the best content I can give you right now. Juan Soto is the first player age 23 or younger to be an all-star in that year and be traded in that same year. He's the youngest all-star in a, in a mid-season to move ever in the history of baseball. He also becomes the first player under 24 years old to be in multiple all-stars. He's been to two and then be traded in the history of the game. So all those people saying Juan Soto's just don't get traded, this is what they're talking about. They don't get traded at this age. They wait until they're 30, 31, 32, and you can see the decline starting to happen, and then they get put on the trade block. It just doesn't happen, okay? <laughs> and I know you're thinking because it's fresh in our minds, all right, this guy's a home run hitter, right? He just won the home run derby. That's not what this guy's about, and I've said it before. But here's fun fact number three from Sarah Langs. There have been about 175 players to make at least 1,500 plate appearances since 2018. So 18, 19, half of 2021, half of 2022. There are three of those players who have more walks than strikeouts as a batter. Carlos Santana, who has 12 more walks than strikeouts. Alex Bregman, 36 more. And Juan Soto, an unbelievable 50. 50 more walks than Ks. Not intentional walks, walks. I'm sitting up there, I'm waiting for my pitch, and if I don't get it, I'm trotting down to first base. That's just who he is. He doesn't strike out. He's the batting average home run guy. That's what he is. He is Manny Ramirez, and I've been saying this over and over again. He has 119 home runs, which is top 11 for players before, before 24 years old. And speaking of that discipline at the plate, his final game in Washington against Max Scherzer, by the way, marked the 31st time in his career that he had at least three walks. That is two more than any other player before 24, before age 24 in the history of baseball. That other player is Ted Williams at 29. Okay. That's how much he's willing to walk. That's how much he is willing to get on base. That's 40% of why he's as important as he is. Truly. It's not the home run. Not even the double. It's all of it. It's got to be the whole package. The trade to San Diego, which came just after they acquired Josh Hader from Milwaukee, makes San Diego the eighth team to acquire two current All-Stars at the trade deadline. Just the eighth team. And Sarah breaks down all seven others there for you in this piece, which I will tweet out. Why did the Padres need Juan Soto? Well, and Josh Bell, I guess too, right? They entered the trade deadline with a 25th ranked slugging percentage, 376. There has not been a World Series winner with a slugging percentage that low 
in terms of rankings in the league ever. So it had to improve. They simply weren't getting enough pop at the plate. They have the pitching staff. They now have the closer and hater, which I would argue is a more important acquisition to this year than Juan Soto. But that stat right there, that's why she's as good as she is, Sarah Langs, because that stat right there tells you there is a threshold. Okay, You don't have to be the, the, the highest home run hitting team in baseball. But you can't be a team that's just going base to base. You've got to be looking for extra bases. You've got to be manufacturing runs. And you've got to do some with some power. So look, Tatis coming back in 10 days or so is going to amplify that too. But obviously they've doubled down, maybe even tripled down if Josh Bell can continue having the year he's having with his just a doubles machine. So obviously San Diego did well here. But when you put these kind of facts together, to me, it's less about San Diego getting him. And we're going to be talking about that for you know, at least two and a half years here. But Washington getting rid of him, which, by the way, the hall was breathtaking. It's breathtaking what they did. They got the shortstop. They got the key outfielder. They got two key pitchers. You can say that Luke Voigt is an upgrade defensively and at the plate to, to what Josh Bell was, and certainly what Eric Cosmer would have been, you know, discussion aside. There, there's a lot to like. You know, Mackenzie Gore's got an injury right now. Unless that's a chronic thing, he's going to be a guy. And they did this last year with Trey Turner and Max Scherzer and brought back two guys in Josiah Gray and Kybert Ruiz. So now there's, there's a template here of like five to seven, maybe even eight players who for the next two to three years, you know, they're going to be part of a bad team, but they're going to look like Baltimore at some point in time here where they're just going to start to turn heads and be like, where the hell did this team come from? That's what this did. All that said, how do you look past these things? This player, this Juan Soto player, has never been traded before. Not the age, plus the production, plus the ceiling, right? He's never been traded before. So we don't know if the Hall's good enough. We do know, unequivocally, that Juan Soto is good enough. So whatever the Padres had to give up, in my opinion, is worth it only because they've got five or six starting pitchers that should be able to hold that fort down. And only because the first move was establishing that bullpen arm, which they were struggling with mightily. Josh Hader, to me, solidified their right to overpay for Juan Soto. And that's what they did. So it's a collection of everything that happened over the past 48 hours. And I know I promised I wasn't going Padres. It's hard not to go Padres. I think, you know, it's stupid to say they won the, the deadline. Of course they won the deadline, but it's not just because of Juan Soto. They unleashed their ability to get to Juan Soto because of the moves they made prior to that. And by the way, you know, the tweet I put out yesterday, if you're just going starting nine plus DH plus closer plus five starting pitchers, there's only one player on that list right now, one, who was not acquired via trade. I mean, A.J. Preller does one thing. He sits there on Twitter, and he reads about people that he should get, and then he gets them. I'm joking. Obviously, he's a lot more thought-provoking than that. But Manny Machado is the only player right now in this starting lineup that was not acquired via trade. They, they signed him in free agency, obviously. That's it. Everything else has been acquired via trade. It's just what they do. It's just what they do. So 
We'll see if it works. I don't think it's going to work this year. But I think that they've done everything possible that a team can do at the deadline to at least prepare themselves and give themselves the experience to get to next year. And then when this, year, when this team has a full year of this roster with Tatis, with Machado, with Soto in the middle of that lineup, with Cronenworth on the, on the fringe there, with Josh Bell maybe coming back into the fold, although he's probably just a rental, and then with this starting, you know, the starting pitchers, they also extended Joe Musgrove five, five years, $100 million amidst all this chaos. So again, it may not be this year. I think they're sixth or seventh in World Series odds right now. But they are set up for a three-year run here, which leads me to my next point. Will Juan Soto get a contract now? San Diego's going to try, right? They probably already tried. Scott Boris is taking every phone call. I'm sure all the contracts look a hell of a lot like Tatis's deal, but, you know, $150 million more. Does Scott Boris say yes to 50 a year at five years? Five years, $250 million fully guaranteed. No opt-out. Is that what Juan Soto needs to hear right now? Because A, that aligns properly with whatever window they think they can keep themselves in for the next few years, San Diego. It gets Juan Soto back to the open market before 30, which is obviously important in every sport right now. And it gets him $250 million. Now, they're going to be taxpayers whether he goes to arbitration or whether they pay him a contract. They're going to be taxpayers. It's just, you don't do what you just did over the next 40 or last 48 hours and then say, ah, but we're going to try to make sure we uh, stay under that threshold. No, you're going. You're going in. You're going to be the Dodgers, maybe even the Mets in terms of tax allocations. There's no going back now. And if you do, you're just becoming the angels, right? If you do this, and then try to trim fat and, and, and reduce yourself to make sure you're not a taxpayer, you're going to look like the angels as quickly as possible. So, what we need to see here is more aggressiveness. And I do believe that, especially if they don't win this year, right? If you don't get it done right now, if you, if you haven't immediately made this work and you now have to prepare for the full season in 2023 with this loaded roster and a taxpaying situation, you have, to, you have to convince yourself that you can add a piece every year, that you can make this work, that you can, you can kind of amplify this thing slowly within this window of contention. And part of that may be just saying to, to the world, here's our guy. He's going to be exactly what we need to be. We don't want to lock him down for forever because that's, that's bad on him. Nobody should be controlling Juan Soto for 15 years. We don't, we don't want to be that team. Nobody should want to be that team. Juan Soto should be able to do what he has to do. He is that historically important to baseball. But for five years, we need this guy on our side. And we're willing to go 45 to 50 million a year to do it. We're going to go past Scherzer. We're going to fully guarantee it. We just want to make sure there's no opt-outs because we need this guy here with us, aligned with Tatis and Machado as well. Does Scott Boris say no to that? I don't know. Because I think there's a, there's a hell of a lot of reasons to like that. And oh, by the way, being in San Diego for five years ain't too bad either. So I don't believe the contract is immediately coming, especially if San Diego's offering the big, the big long-term deal that Washington has been trying for the past year and a half. But if they, uh, if they go that route, do those phone cars calls become a little longer, a little bit more drawn out, a little bit more strategic, and does Scott Boris actually start to think to himself, I got I to talk him into this because this makes sense. 
All right, a few other teams. The Atlanta Braves, just like last year, were super aggressive. They got themselves a new closer and Roger, Roger Iglesias from those Angels, along with the middle setup guy, Jesse Chavez. Um, excuse me. Chavez goes to the Angels for Iglesias. Um, it's an upgrade. They also signed Austin Riley, their cornerstone third baseman here, to a $212 million extension. The biggest deal in the history of the Braves, but it is another value deal. Looks like that Acuna contract all over again um, because it's not 30 a year, because it's not Anthony Rendon's 35 a year. It's just 212 over 10. Pretty straight deals. Buys out the three years of arbitration, gets him into, into free agency. He's the guy. I mean, he's going to be an NL MVP candidate pretty much every year. And by the way, his teammate Acuna is going to be right there with him when he's healthy. So another steal deal for the Atlanta Braves. What else is new? And they make some nice acquisitions as well. Um, I really like what Baltimore did here. And I know if you're, a, if you're a Bird fan, if you are a fan of that division and you've been following this team, seeing Trey Mancini walk out that door to an ugly Houston team, by the way, stinks, but it's such the right move. And so was trading the closer. And Cousin Dan, who was unavailable here, but I wanted to make sure his sentiments got out there. He was so right in saying it this way. Because you look at a team that has finally turned a corner and you think, why the hell would they trade their closer? A guy who has really figured it out in Jorge Lopez. To the twins, by the way. Because the closer is the last piece. As I just referenced with you, right? The closer is okay, we got the guys that can get us six innings. We got the bats that can, get, that can get us the lead. Now we're ready to shut down the eighth and ninth inning. It's, I mean, you can build your roster as if it's the game, right? How do we win the first inning? How do we win the fourth inning? And then if we can get there, how do we win the seventh, eighth, and ninth? The Baltimore Orioles just simply aren't ready for the ninth inning guy. Now, they've been using him to the best of his ability and winning games with him but they're just not ready to win enough games to make him valuable versus what you can get from a trade asset standpoint right now for him. So while you hate to see that guy leave a roster because he's certainly helping them, they're not ready for him. And what they did in, in acquiring these assets for these two players, it's just the right decision. They've already got major league baseball talent, you know, five, six guys who are really going to matter in 2023. How do they quickly get two to three more? This is how. This is how right here. So they're going to be aggressive in free agency. I'm positive of that because they can smell it. And they're going to use these new assets to not only have depth, but maybe find one more lightning in the bottle, go with the current situation. Then they go find that ninth inning guy. You know, they just need one more starting pitcher, in my opinion. So I do think that was the right move, even though it stinks to see them kind of bail out here on what's been a great season, a great half a year for them. I mean, the Red Sox didn't do it all. You know, J.D. Martinez stays, Bogart stays for sure, Avaldi stays, but they traded the catcher Vasquez. They brought in Hosmer and a couple of decent prospects from San Diego. And Tommy Pham is Tommy Pham. Um, I don't know. <laughs> to me, what Boston has done since the new GM situation took over, starting with the Mookie Betts trade, has been 100% questionable. I'm not sure I'm in love with any of it. I think they're, they're, they're organizing themselves into a situation with Rafael Devers that is going to get ugly. And if they try to lowball Devers, and I know Austin Riley's contract is going to be tasty to that new Boston front office, but if they think they're getting that with Rafael Devers, uh, they're crazy. <laughs> they're crazy. 
because Devers' contract needs to look like Betts, not not Riley's. This could be a big tear off. They may lose Bogarts to an opt out free agency. They're going to lose Martinez. They're going to lose Avaldi. I don't know what other pitcher is worth a damn on that roster. It's going to get ugly. This might be the worst team in the AL East next year, which could then turn to be one of the worst teams in the AL next year. So they may smell that. They simply wanted to get a couple of assets, and then they're just going to let some things walk away and just walk away. And we'll see what happens, how quickly they can maybe turn that corner back around. I may be wrong. You know, this might be a Celtics situation where they come and storm into the second half of the season and show up. I don't, I don't anticipate that. But to me, this is a we're in stuck mode right now. We just got we to gotta purge this offseason to get back where we need to be in 2024. We'll see. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'd say the same with the Cubs. They kind of looked at their situations and said, why, you know, why would we get C prospects for Contreras or Hap when we can just kind of let this thing ride out, offer these guys a qualifying offer, see what happens, take the draft picks. And, and because they're in a slow rebuild in Chicago, I mean, that is not going to be a, a quick build back up. So they're counting their hedges on the draft and free agency and, and using the winter to kind of reassess where they are as well. There's no need to, to rush themselves into moving two players they didn't really need to move. And they can kind of play out the rest of the year with some players that at least are familiar to the fan base. Um, Cincinnati did a hell of a job. Cincinnati traded Tyler Male. It just the work. Tommy Pham. Everybody you thought was going to go in Cincinnati went. And I think that's the right thing to do. Okay. They added three top 100 prospects. They got some shortstops in. They can move around the infield a little bit. They're, they're just setting themselves up for, at some point in time, a, a better version of themselves. It's not today. It's not tomorrow, but it's coming. Um, so in terms of how the sellers looked, I thought they were excellent. I did not like that Kansas city in this regard. I did not like the angels in this regard in terms of sellers. I thought the Marlins probably should have sold more, maybe one or two of those starting pitchers. They got, they got rid of some of the relievers as we anticipated, but I, th- I thought they should have ripped this thing up a little bit more. And by the way, Pittsburgh did the same. And they kind of stood pat. You know, they moved Quintana, but and they moved Vogelbach. But those were easy moves, you know? They didn't move the team controlled closer like Baltimore did. And that discussion I just had. They didn't move their best trade asset in Brian Reynolds. Yes, he's had some injuries and they probably didn't get the return they were looking for. But they're holding on in some pieces here. And they did have a decent run here through June. So maybe there's a small glimmer of hope down the end of the tunnel here, but would have liked to see more there. And I would have liked to see the San Francisco Giants rip some bandits off, as I mentioned with Carlos Verdon. Uh, I know they were trying to do that last minute. They were one of those teams that literally the, the two, three games leading up to the deadline changed probably their entire offseason. And they probably couldn't get that, that, that correct deal for Rodon now. He's going to opt out. He's going to get $30 million a year it probably won't be back there. So in other words, they're going to be moving backwards this winter. And they didn't really do a good job of starting that right now, in my opinion, for assets. Maybe they can continue to do so in the offseason, but I don't know that they did so. Seattle went big. And Seattle went big with pitchers. And that's not being talked about enough, in my opinion. There's a world where Josh Hader and Luis Castillo were the biggest acquisitions of this deadline. And, And I understand the Soto and the Bells and all of that. And, and by the way, 
the Yankees getting Frankie Montas, though I'm a little worried about the injury stuff, is just as big. It's just as enormous. So we have seen multiple times a team get an arm at the deadline and then either jump up to that contender mode or they were already there. And this is the thing. Early November, that is the single difference in a game one, game four situation. This becomes the thing. And that may be Frankie Montas. You know, if things are timed out weird and it's not Garrett Cole taking them out in game one of the World Series, obviously I'm foreshadowing. Why couldn't it be Frankie Monta? Very well, maybe. So I know those things will get pushed down because the Padres were so freaking loud and noisy. But those, these are the moves, you know. These are the moves that ended up mattering. And even Jordan Montgomery going to the Cardinals, from the Yankees, by the way. It's a big move. The Cardinals got Quintana and Jordan Montgomery. Starting pitching was easily their liability right now. So not getting Juan Soto is a bummer to that fan base, but they got the, they filled the right hole. I don't know if it's the right people, but they filled the right hole, in my opinion. They've got some bats that just need to wake the hell up on that roster. So if you're a Cardinals fan or if you've got you know $50 on the Cardinals preseason World Series, uh, you should be happy that it, they at least took the right approach, even though they swung and missed on the big players. Um, last team. Toronto. I really wanted Toronto to go big here. Big. Like, starter, a reliever, a big bat. Move one of these prospects. Maybe move Kevin Biggio. Maybe move Tiasker, who's finally bounced back. Uh, they got Whit Merrifield. Utility guys, which we've seen be extremely valuable in October, so I'm not knocking it at all. And they did get some decent relievers. You know, the Anthony Bassack pop situation from Miami. Those are good, experienced guys there. Um, I just don't know if that's enough. You know, they feel like a team that looks up at the Yankees in the division and, and looks around the wild card situation. And if I have to reference the wild card standings with Cleveland and Toronto and, and Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay was extremely aggressive, way more aggressive than I thought they were going to be at this deadline. They are smelling it. And Cleveland is already showing that they, they deserve to be there, even though they were quiet at the deadline here. So if I'm the Blue Jays, I needed to do more than those two teams. I needed, I needed to have a, have a roster right now, August 3rd, that looks markedly better than Cleveland and Tampa Bay, and I'm not sure they're there. So if we're talking about teams that could sneak themselves up into the, like the divisional round, Toronto, to me, was under, underwhelming at this deadline in that regard. But I still like to watch them. Still like to watch them quite a bit. Can't wait to see what Black Guerrero Jr. does, financially speaking, here soon as well. Okay, let's switch gears to basketball. A little bit on LeBron, and we'll get out of here this week. All right, despite the fact that the NFL is falling apart at the seams right now and Major League Baseball is tumbling through a huge trade deadline, which, of course, we've discussed at nauseam here, I do have to talk some basketball. And uh, I didn't want to pull Scott Allen or Keith Smith into this conversation just yet because that is the middle of summer. <laughs> they just went through a big offseason, free agency period, and things like that. So they're kind of... Uh, in refresh mode, but August 4th is a big day. It's probably not going to be the, the action day, but it is the day that LeBron James becomes extension eligible with, with the Lakers. And again, I'm not anticipating an immediate extension. In fact, I would be shocked if one happened on August 4th. But my goal here is to kind of break down the numbers, break down the options, the opportunities that Keith Smith has done 
in our next contract series. Give my thoughts with this uh, a little bit of objectiveness because the Lakers are still kind of, you know, spinning their tires right now. And there may be a big move coming that may include future draft picks. I believe they're going to have to send two picks to get a Buddy Heald, you know, Miles Turner package that's been discussed over and over and over. So what happens here? And, and let's start with LeBron, obviously. 38 years old for this upcoming season. There's an over 38 rule from a contractual standpoint that Keith breaks down in the piece. I don't think it's going to apply here, so I'm going to leave that alone for now. But basically, it's, some kind of, it's, a, it's a retirement protection plan saying you, you can't front load and you can't go too far out. Long story short, if LeBron lets this thing play out for the upcoming season and his contract expires, there are three options for the Lakers, contractually speaking. There's the one-year, there's the two-year, and there's the three-year. That's the max they can do with LeBron. The cap shouldn't apply here in terms of the up and down with this. Because of LeBron James' current max salary, all these numbers start at $46.6 million for 2023, which is 105% of his current salary. Whether it's a one-year deal with the Lakers, a two-year deal, a three-year deal, or a new contract in free agency next offseason, which would require a cap space. So it's pretty cut and dry from a number standpoint. So this is where we have to get sort of objective and kind of read the tea leaves and understand where LeBron is where the Lakers are, and obviously that's going to change over the next couple of uh, weeks here based on, like I said, a potential trade package, possibly moving away from Russell, or riding with what they have and then getting to the deadline and seeing what they can do at that point. Very fluid. With that said, I'm not sure why LeBron would extend right now. There's no financial benefit to doing it. In fact, not doing it puts even more pressure on the Lakers. right now for the next six to six to eight weeks leading up to obviously preseason and then the regular season in which he'll be an expiring contract. So I'd be shocked if August 4th, the Lakers announced any sort of extension, even if it's just a one-year extension, that would shock me because I think LeBron needs to play a little ball here and he's done that in the past. So why not do it now in what is certainly the twilight of his career? The point to be made, and it's been made a lot, but it's, relevant until it's not, is this is going to be about freedom than it is more about dollars. And sure, if he wants his freedom immediately, A, he can request a trade right now, something I think that isn't completely crazy. You know, maybe it's 10% crazy. <laughs> um, but let's say that's not going to be the case. He can certainly just let this thing ride out and get to a point where either he hits free agency or he's in a sign-and-trade sign situation with the Lakers next offseason. Or he can do what he's done in the past, especially in these sort of uneasy times with his current team, which is, I'll take that one plus one, which is at 46-6, I'll play on that in 2023, possibly a mid-season trade candidate right in February of 2024. And then I'll have a player option for myself in 2024-25, which if we're talking about maxes, 
will be at just over 50 million second salary. So 46.6 plus a 50.4, talking about a two-year, $97 million contract, but that second season, that second salary is a player option. Super standard stuff right now with the NBA. We've seen less of those maybe in the past two to three years, whereas there was a three to five-year chunk where they were super, super popular with the superstar players. Um, and then COVID stuff and some injury stuff, I think scared some agents and players into going more long-term. And, oh, by the way, you know, the ramping up of the player empowerment situation, which is just get me in the longest contract possible. And I'll just force myself out whenever I need to, regardless of what my contract says. Now, maybe there's a sticking point here with Durant, but my guesstimation would be that LeBron does that one plus one. Why? Because Bronny James is eligible to, be, to hit the NBA in 2024-25. Not sure that's going to happen, but that's at least an eligible year. So in two complete seasons, this upcoming and then one more, we could be talking about where is Bronny going. And certainly LeBron is going to want the flexibility to be able to do whatever he wants to do at that point. So if by chance the Lakers need to sign him as an undrafted free agent, maybe he opts into that player option we go from here. He ends up in another franchise. LeBron can opt out. LeBron can ask for a trade, can opt in and be traded, similar to what I think Kyrie might, might have in front of him in the next couple of weeks. But the point here is, this is not about dollars and cents for LeBron James. Certainly, it's going to matter. I mean, 100 million is 100 million. But it's going to be about get in, try to do something with the Lakers at least for one year, and then if I have to get out, I'm getting out on my terms. Otherwise, it's completely my decision whether to stay, whether to go, whether to walk away, whether to retire, and we'll go from there. I can't imagine a world where he signs a three-year extension, locks himself into 2025, and we go from there. Now, that would have to happen after this upcoming season. That would be part of the free agent contract. So I think that's what I'm voting for. I think my initial assessment of this is, don't even worry about this extension. You know, not now, not in September, not even in the middle of the season. Let this thing get all the way to the finish line and assess the entire league as a whole. Because coming back on a one, two, or three to the Lakers is the same money. It's got absolutely no difference. They still hold his rights. It is what it is. So that would be my assessment, how I'd read this thing. LeBron just lets this thing ride out. He becomes an expiring contract, which is, by the way, going to be, you know, pretty good content for the basketball world out there. And, uh, and then from there, it's all about his free. It's all about 2024-25, establishing the ability to do what he needs to do, to, be, to pivot when he needs to pivot, and things like that. But I don't think this is about getting himself off the Lakers today. Like I said, the Lakers may not be done. And that may be a positive for LeBron, or they could be in the midst, you know, they could be staring down one hell of a weird season. Let's put it that way. Not that last year wasn't, but I don't think he's in any position to make an early decision. right. Now. And the Lakers are certainly going to offer it because losing this guy would just be the next, you know, step down that ladder. But I don't think he takes it. So while August 4th is a big day and you're going to, you're going to see a lot about this. From a contractual standpoint, I just don't know why it makes sense. Put the pressure on the Lakers. Put the pressure on them all year. 
you know, and that may even include the trade deadline. Put the pressure on them all year to know that, look, it's in LeBron's hands come July 1st, 2023. So if they have to do whatever they have to do to, to figure things out over the next 12 months or so, and then he'll decide if coming back on a one, on a one plus one, on a two, on a, on, on a three, which would be crazy, is in his cards. And if not, he'll be working on a sign and trade to get out of it. So yes, it's a fluid situation. I don't think it's, an, it's a rushed situation, but Thursday, August 4th is at least the start, the green light for LeBron James' next contract somewhere in the NBA. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off that first year subscription. Check out dynastyowner.com as well. It's fantasy football time and your dynasty league starts at dynastyowner.com. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Chinetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Track Podcast. 